0: From the Preservation Maryland studios in the Historic Podcast District of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Today's guest is a first for PreserveCast. Amy Giorgiani was appointed by the President of the United States to be the first full-time chairman of the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, the federal agency tasked with coordinating preservation policy across the government. From the halls of Congress to the Pueblos of the Southwest, Chairman George Johnny is doing her bit to promote preservation, and we'll learn what she's planning next on this week's PreserveCast. Before we start this week's episode, I really want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask for your help. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that depends on member contributions to fund its work. This podcast receives no government support and currently has no major funder support. Its budget is entirely dependent on listener contributions. I'm hoping you'll consider making a quick gift to help support this podcast, which is bringing important preservation stories to thousands of listeners around the country. Think of us as your Preservation Netflix. Any amount helps, and you can make a quick online donation by going to preservecast.org and clicking the Donate Now button in the upper right-hand corner. We'd greatly appreciate it. Now, let's get preserving. Amy Giorgiani earned Senate confirmation in June 2019 as the first full-time chairman of the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. Ms. Giorgiani has nearly 20 years of experience in the fields of government and cultural resources from a variety of perspectives, including both executive and legislative branches, as well as the nonprofit sector. Her career began in Capitol Hill in 1999, working as a legislative aide to Representative Paul Ryan. In 2002, she moved to the U.S. Department of the Interior and held several positions, including serving as the Deputy Secretary Special Assistant. In 2002, she moved to the U.S. Department of the Interior and held several positions, including serving as the Deputy Secretary's Special Assistant for Historic Preservation. A native of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Ms. Georgiani graduated from Northern Michigan University with a major in political science and a minor in public relations, and later earned a master's in historic preservation from Goucher College in Maryland. All right, well, we're here with Amy Georgiani, and it's a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. Amy, um, we want to talk about All of your experiences and the work that you do with the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about your path to preservation. What got you involved in this work and uh, what kind of made you the person you are today?
1: Ah, Great question. Um, You know, quite frankly, it all goes back to growing up in the city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. just right in the heart of it, not far from any historically industrial areas. Um, I always saw the beauty in those dirty bricks and was fascinated by the stories of the many ethnic neighborhoods and and places of worship built by master immigrant craftspeople. They were just fascinating to to gawk at. Um, I saw beauty um, everywhere where I think many people uh, for a period of time did not. and um, it was those stories that defined various ethnic neighborhoods, um, like where my parents grew up and where their um, parents were and where my great-grandparents immigrated to and essentially squatted on the shores of Lake Michigan. Um, it was just, you know, these local stories were, were everywhere throughout Milwaukee. Um, and uh, yeah, then this, uh, <laughs> the, the neighborhoods really kind of defined, you know, who you were and, and then the, the Midwestern ethnic uh, work ethic within each one of them. Um, And then, too, growing up, um, I saw a lot of suburban flight um, in some areas of the city that just were really underutilized. Um, Going back today, you know, Places are really being revitalized. Um, you could call it, kind of call it, a rust belt of a town, um, but at the same time, it had this, you know, beautiful background of Lake Michigan. Um, you know, along those shores, I always had a great time driving up and down them with my mom on Sundays, looking at the beautiful mansions on Lake Drive and admiring those elegant homes by the local noted architects and you know, clearly different from where I grew up but it was you know, those little places to escape to were always um, kind of fun to imagine um, and, and then too growing up in the city I always lived within you know walking distance from school and, and jobs I had and, and that kind of walkability was really sort of ingrained in me um, so it, just, it was kind of a preservation pit if you will um, that just sort of embedded this type of ethic
0: and so uh what was your first job in the field? So did you end up going and studying this and then decided that you were going to work in it? Or how did that all come about?
1: Yeah, um, it all kind of came about with... um, I guess uh, growing up too, we would always take little day trips to Chicago and that was fun and doing different architectural tours. Um, I suppose my love of architecture initially... Got me engaged. Um, but then uh, I took a high school government class field trip on a train all the way out to Washington, D.C. And, you know, just like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, we arrived at Union Station and out those doors was the U.S. Capitol building. Um, that was, you know, just a sight to see when I was all of, I guess, 16 years old. Um, hadn't seen anything like that before. And, um, uh, that that's just kind of got me interested in you know someday I'm going to come back to DC I want to work in that building um I loved my government class and my government teacher to this day we still keep in touch um and um yeah that eventually uh led to uh working on Capitol Hill um so if, if giving uh, capital tours is included in a, as, a pre, as a first job preservation, um, that might be one of them. Um, I uh, uh, It was all pre-9-11, and at that time we could just go anywhere around the Capitol building uh, with constituents. Or, um Capitol Historical Society offered wonderful classes uh, for staff on the history of various sections of the building, and I took advantage of all of them. Um, I kind of think I got hired by that congressman because I got really excited about the process of giving capital tours. Um, but um, yeah, otherwise, um, a few years later, I um, uh, was lucky to be involved in um, the launch of the Preserve America Initiative. Um, to it was seventeen years ago, today, March third, two thousand three, um, that Mrs. Bush announced the creation of this interagency initiative. And um at the time I worked at the Department of the Interior and um my boss, um, Lynn Scarlett was the co chair of the initiative. And um, you know, she chaired and co chaired many things. Um but for this, um I saw this folder on her chief of staff's desk and was quick to claim it and um it was a wonderful wonderful opportunity to work closely with her and exclusively on something. Um and she could clearly tell I was very enthusiastic um and trusted me every step of the way. Um at that point it started out as a folder and three years later it became a, a full time focus um as the success of the initiative. Um Evolved. Uh, we had a, a grant program on the Hill and are, um, you know, funded through Congress um, after two attempts and, you know, learned many lessons on that. Um, we worked with all sorts of governors and um, con- uh, congressmen and senators um, in uh, getting close to a thousand um, preserved American communities designated. Um, and, and that was all just, I mean, looking back, it was just a matter of a couple of, of years, um, where this effort expanded and grew. Um, funding for it definitely helped, um, the enthusiasm behind it. But at the same time, it was, you know, um, local pride and, and, um, and, you know, just getting to the heart of, of of heritage tourism was, and not that it was a new concept back then, but it was something that we were trying to use as an economic driver and, and expand more on the role of preservation.
0: Yeah, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about Preserve America in a second, but I do have to ask... Um you, you do mention, of course, in your bio that, you know, that congressman that you work for was uh, Representative Paul Ryan, who has, has went on to some um, some fame. People may have heard of him. Um, and, uh, bef- you know, before you headed to Department of Interior, you worked in that office. Um, anything I mean, you, you mentioned him in the bio, so I feel like it's fair game. Anything you want to uh, tell us about Paul Ryan? Does he love historic places? What's his favorite interest in history? Give us uh, something maybe we wouldn't already know.
1: Oh, yeah, uh yes, it was uh, uh my first boss on the hill, and it was during his freshman term of Congress um I think the entire office was under thirty years of age at the time um and uh he um he does um appreciate historic places um and especially his wife um she loves all things historic and antique, and we would always talk have discussions about that and um places uh consignment <laughs> stores we'd shop at and what have you. But they've always had home um I think two different homes in, in the heart of the historic district in Janesville, Wisconsin. She um was so excited when they had their first home there. Um and it's a neat town of Janesville has quite a history. He, I think, he was a fifth generation, so now his kids are a sixth generation Janesville. Um, so he's always passionate about the people and the industry and the places um, you know, of of his hometown, and um, you know that really correlated with every issue he touched. It always went back to Wisconsin and 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 these communities within it. Um, and so that, you know, it was an honor to work for him, and I think we kind of tried to out-love Wisconsin to each other. <laughs> it was um we are very proud. And of course, you know, the Packer tradition, he's done some wonderful <laughs> videos over the years, too, on, on the history of the Green Bay Packers and, 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 uh, and in fact, in the speaker's office suite, um, I got to visit a few times as a speaker. He had, uh, Wisconsin Historical Society, uh, books all over <laughs> his office on every bookshelf. And, um, so that was, again, just such a thrill to see his career progress. But then seeing the speaker's suite, you know, overlooking the National Mall and having Wisconsin
0: represented all over it was fantastic very cool so um as you mentioned after you left representative ryan's office um you ended up in the department of the interior and you gave us a little sneak preview of that and you talked a little bit about preserve america um but tell us about like what were you doing at doi how did you end up there and then you know like then maybe we can go in a little more details about what preserve america was and what it is today and all that kind of thing
1: um, sure. Um, yeah, uh, the interior department was a really great opportunity. Um, when you're on the hill, you know, you kind of get a glamp, glimpse of the federal government as a whole. You know, unless you are kind of are staffing specific committee work of your boss, um, you know, do you really get to dive into, um, you know, specific departments? And so going from the hill to a specific department was, um, yeah, just a really um, neat way, um, and then also seeing what the Hill looks like from a department <laughs> was also very an interesting perspective. Um, but I started there um, initially for the first two years um, working with the Assistant Secretary for Policy Management Budget, um, but then practically the number three person of the department, um, one of the few people who has department-wide authority. Um, at the time, the Interior had over 70,000 employees, um, I think it was about nine bureaus then, that number keeps fluctuating. Um, um, but each bureau has their own culture, challenges, competing missions, legislative directives. Um, it spanned 13 time zones <laughs> around the globe. Of course, expanding to the territories, um, it, w- it was fascinating to see from that perspective um, you know, the balance um, to manage um, all of the you know, everything overarchingly at the department level. Um, So after working for the Assistant Secretary of Policy Management and Budget, switched over to the um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, working for the Director on Secretarial Initiatives and um, to see mm, the challenges that they faced in implementing them from a department level to a bureau level, um, where they were housed under the Assistant Secretary for Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Um, Their sister agency was the National Park Service, who they fought for love and attention over. was, um, you know, a, a great experience to get these various levels and the experiences behind them. Um, and, um, you know, quite frankly, um, skipping ahead now to being at the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, I can appreciate the various challenges the federal agencies and the, the members of our council have, um, whether it's, you know, department wide or within a specific agency and, um, you know, other, um, ways they need to comply with, um, overarching directives, um, is, is, is not for the faint of heart.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And we, we actually just had a, we did a preserve cast, um, with, um, Tom Moriarty, um, who is, you know, has been involved with Preservation Action and a variety of different, you know, helped create the National Main Street Program. And um, one of the things that we talked about with him were sort of these conflicting priorities and conflicting messages that different federal agencies have about preservation. Um, so just keeping it straight and, you know, they're, they're all kind of working from different playbooks and, and that could be a challenge. And, and I know that that's obviously something that you guys focus on a lot at, um, at ACHP.
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's it's different playbooks, but it's also if you're not understanding, you know, what their challenges are, you're you're not going to be able to help them. And um and so I think, you know, getting the different perspectives from um um you know, where preservation fits within an entity, Um, and and this even is the same for state historic preservation offices. Um, They're all housed within different sections of their state government, and um, so sometimes when I am looking into a certain issue with a state or or before meeting with one, I always like to see, you know, where where are they in the state structure of government? Um, If they're housed in, you know, a Department of Natural Resources, um, you know, there may be slightly different priorities versus if they're housed in, you know, an economic development entity here you know, um i think it's um worth you know researching that and kind of looking into that before you know proceeding on anything um and certainly not expecting something overarching from everybody in the same mechanism it's all going to be done you know very very differently
0: so um why don't we take a quick break here and when we come back let's talk a little bit more about preserve america and then really get into the nitty-gritty of the advisory council and we'll do that right here on preserve cast One hundred years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the Women's Suffrage Movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, Preserve Cast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avelius & Jones, Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit BallotAndBeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Dr. Lieb Sokol-Diamond, a skilled and dedicated pediatric surgeon in Maryland. Read by Ellie Comers-Cowan, Director of Advocacy at Preservation Maryland.
2: Dr. Leeby Sokol-Diamond. Dr. Lebe Sokol-Diamond was a pioneer in many ways and one of the nation's leading pediatric orthopedic surgeons. Adolf Tornado's so-called diamond was the only child of Max Sokol and Anne Hirshhorn Sokol, who were deeply involved in helping Jews in Eastern Europe flee their homelands and resettle in the United States during the 1930s. Libby was born with congenital ring constriction syndrome, which caused the loss of several fingers and toes while in the womb. By the time she was a teenager, she had undergone 25 surgical procedures. She would go on to use those experiences for the rest of her life in surgery, research, and teaching. She once told a colleague, You can either bitch or moan and make everyone around miserable or accept what is reality and get on with your life. So-called Diamond focused on hand and limb deformities, particularly orthopedic aspects of genetic diseases in children similar to her own and a medically underserved group at that time. So-called Diamond was the first female resident at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital and became its first female orthopedic surgical resident in 1960. She was certified by the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery in 1963. Sometimes, she said, it was not working with a disability, but gender, that would present her biggest challenge. In an interview with J. Moore Magazine, she said, In retrospect, maybe some of my rough times were because I was a woman. We were tolerated in a physical sense. Out of 200 interns and residents, there were only five women. You took what was dished out and you shut up and drank your beer. We all thought that if you made any noise, we'd be kicked out. Diamond became renowned in her field for her innovative techniques for correcting limb deformities. The children saw a surgeon with challenges similar to their own using her custom designed surgical gloves. She drew on her personal experiences to tend to them and their families in a special and distinctive way. By sharing, Dr. So called Diamond said, she could take some of their loneliness, some of their fear for the future. One of her students, Jerome Reich Mister, who went on to become the chief of orthopedic surgery at Sinai Hospital said, she had the ability to relate to the kids and their families and give them the best possible expectations. It takes a special person who can speak with authority because she had lived through it. Dr. Sokol Diamond was a professor at the University of Maryland for over 30 years and consulted at many local hospitals. Doctor Libby so called Diamond died in twenty seventeen, and her impact on medicine in Maryland was widespread.
0: This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Preserve Cast today. We're joined by Amy Giorgiani, uh, the chairman of the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. And before we took our break, we were talking with Amy um, about Department of the Interior and how it um, sort of shaped her experience and her understanding of preservation to work both at the department level, at the bureau level, has worked in the halls of Congress. Um, and while you were at DOI, before we really get into ACHP, which is, you know, I want to spend some more time, um, but you, you you gave us a little bit of a sneak preview of Preserve America, but but what was it? What was the the ethos of it? Does it still exist? Should it? What what, what should what should people know about Preserve America?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, preserve America um, is a federal initiative that encourages um, and supports community efforts uh, to preserve and, and use and enjoy our nation's cultural and natural heritage and learn from it. Um, the goals um there are several broad goals um you know creating a, a better shared knowledge of our nation's past um strengthening regional and and local identities um and just increasing participation and in, in preserving our country's cultural um assets and along with that supporting economic vitality for our communities um it has components to it um the, a large one was the Preserve American Communities, and um, I believe the number is around a thousand. Um, but there was a, a big um, uh, growth in them between 2003 through, I guess, maybe. 2009 or 2000, probably 2010. Um, And um, yeah, they, we were, I remember keeping the tally of, you know, when we reached all 50 states and then we reached all congressional districts. And yeah, there was a literally a preserve American community everywhere. Um, And to be one, you know, there was an application process where um, they had to have, you know, the support of their their local government and have a um, a preservation commission. And and, you know, we were trying to not make it burdensome, but there were just a few things to check off to be, become a Preserve America community um, that all, also, for a period of time, opened up funding uh, for Preserve America grants. And that was a program that, through seven rounds and about $20 million of funds, uh, funded just under 300 grant projects. Um, and the beauty of that grant program was the broad range of projects it could fund um, through five primary categories of funding um, through research and documentation, um, you know, you could revise the National Register um, um, document, um, you could, you know, research community histories, um, it, you know, it didn't have to go through just for National Register purposes, but um, background for um, interpretive programs, um, historical markers um you name it and then there was also an a separate interpretation and education program um where you could use a wide range of media now in this day and age you got podcasts you've got you know iPhones and we started this before such a thing but um you know you could use it towards um heritage trails itineraries walking tours um you know living history programs interpretive plans uh, you know wide range of things to you know kind of welcome and bring people in into your um your local community, um, also in it was a planning um, projects, um, promotional projects, and um, training um, for professional development and outreach um, for you know to, so a community could learn to you know better utilize and promote their historic resources. Um, so it was. Um, uh, just a, a lot of, um, great projects came out of it. Um, state historic offices could apply for grants to working with their communities. Tribal historic preservation officers were, um, utilized you know, it. Um, and then obviously the Preserve America communities did as well. Um, and then there was, for a period of time, two presidential awards and, um, uh, Preserve America stewards, um, which were, you know, volunteer efforts and noting various friends groups and other great organizations out there. Um, and, uh, There, we were able to authorize into law the Preserve America Grant Program, um, along with Save America's Treasures, and so um, Preserve America is still around. It is in the law books, um, and it can be funded again, pretty much at any time, with any um, either presidential proposal or um, act of Congress.
0: And and will it? (laughs) I mean, now you're putting your crystal ball on here, but I mean, is that? I mean do you think it will ever make a comeback? Or why did it stop? Was it just change of administration?
1: Um, it, it was somewhat change of administration. See, I guess in the FY 2010 um, budget proposal, um, it, they were eliminated, um, Preserve America and Save America. And uh, under the HPF, although the Preserve America wasn't always funded in HPF funds, it was sometimes moved to a different um, pot of money. But um uh, yeah it, it was somewhat viewed um as a bush administration initiative but it really wasn't <laughs> um yeah mrs bush was very active and engaged in it but it wasn't a white house initiative by any means um even going into the bush library you don't see it mentioned it's um um just it wasn't really the case it was just sort of a misnomer but um Uh, Since then, you know, there have been various uh, grant programs introduced um, under the HPF, and they do a wide range of, you know, specific um, things, um, you know, related to research and documentation efforts, but at the same time, those were all things that Preserve America did as well, and so... um, you know, it, so there isn't a confusion with the various moving parts of various grant programs out there. If, say, for example, they were to go under an overarching Preserve American umbrella, um, you know, that's one way to kind of protect the overall goals of, you know, what us as preservationists would like to utilize federal funds for. Um So, yeah, it's hard to say, I mean, I can never, I definitely do not have a crystal ball um, but, um, you know, getting um, congressional champions is always key. Um, we worked very closely, um, you know, back when I worked in the Office of Policy Management and Budget doing such things. And so, it's, you know, it's just a matter of um, doing that. But, again, you know, competing priorities. Um, you got a National Park Service maintenance backlog. Um, you know, it maybe is, you know, is the Park Service the best spot for these type of funding activities? Right. I don't know. Um, but at least, um, uh, you know,
0: Save America's Treasures came back, and I think a lot of people thought that that was... Coast, so. Yeah.
1: And that and that surprised a lot of people. I remember there was a letter going around from like an architectural foundation um, through um, you know, Congressman McCollum, I think. And, you know, it surprised the preservation community when that came back from the dead. And so even that was, um, you know, you, you, just, you never know. No, you
0: never know. So. Let's talk a little bit about the advisory council. So you're 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 back in government. You spent some time in the private sector working for nonprofits, doing some preservation advocacy, and um, you're now at the advisory council um, and in a presidential uh, appointment position, um, Senate confirmed. And you're the first full time chair. So you know what is the advisory council for somebody who doesn't know, and what does it mean to be the first full time chair of said uh, council.
1: Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, a small little federal independent agency um, established with the National Historic Preservation Act in 1966, um, promotes the preservation, enhancement, and sustainable use of our nation's diverse historic resources. Um, We also advise the President and Congress on national historic preservation policy. Um, So being an independent agency is key to note, and also key to note that we are the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, not for historic preservation. Um, working with a wide range of federal agencies and competing missions and where preservation fits among those and what they can do to support, um, you know, where preservation fits is, um, is key um, to what the Advisory Council does.
0: So, on a day-to-day basis, what does that mean?
1: Uh, a big thing of what the ACHP does is the Section 106 review process. Um, it is um, a part of, um, of the National Historic Preservation Act that, um, that is kind of a, a stop, look, and see, and listen um, approach to um, any federal licensing, permitting, or you know, funding um, on any type of project and how it could affect federal resources. A cultural resource, right?
0: Sorry. And so that's that's a big piece of of what's happening. And then, as as you said, advising on policy. So, what is your role in all of this, and and why is there a full time chair, and why wasn't there one before?
1: Yeah, um, it uh, that as chair um, and then a member of the council, I am one of twenty four members, and the council is very uniquely structured in that sense, um, where. We've got you know public and expert citizen members on it. Um, we have a Native American member on the council. Um, about eight or nine um, federal agencies represented, and um, organizations like the National Trust for Historic Preservation, um, National Conference of State Historic Preservation Officers, and National Association of Tribal Historic Preservation Officers. So a mix of you know um, you know nonprofit organizations, um, federal government, um, public, you know, entities and, um, you know, private citizens. And so it, it brings together around the table, um, you know, very unique perspectives. And, um, and so again, I'm just, you know, one member of this 24 council, but I, I do share it. Um, and for a long time up until I just got confirmed, I guess, in 2019, um, it was, um, a part-time role, um, based out of wherever that person, you know, was living. And so they, you know, were active in a variety of different ways. Um, but the council meets three times a year and, um, you know, in between meetings, you know, obviously a lot of work is done and then the chairman would come in town for them for the council meetings and conduct, um, those. Um, meanwhile, um being in Washington, D.C., and having a regular presence of a chairman interacting with federal agencies, um, various federal initiatives, working with the Hill, um, it was really imperative to have a full-time chair in D.C. Um, to, you know, be able to, to advise the Congress <laughs> the administration on preservation policy and how, you know, we can... Um, you know, work it in with other competing interests and priorities on a very regular basis. Um, the idea was floated around, I think, actually through um, a Preserve America summit that took place in 2006. Um, it was a big convening in New Orleans of, of a wide range of preservation professionals and agencies, and um, and the big recommendation was, you know, to have more influence on preservation policy. Someone full time needs to be at the home.
0: And, and that's how that's how it happened. In in, in, a, in a strange way, um, since your involvement in Preserve America, it's almost like you created your own position. But I'm sure that you didn't have the, <laughs> didn't have the ability to plan that far out. You're not quite that good, now, right?
1: Uh, no, I couldn't see. I can't see in the future now, and I couldn't see it that. That's time. a shame. <laughs>
0: um, so um, anything that ACHP is working on right now that people should know about? I know you're forming a Historic Trades Task Force um, that's pretty cool. Near and dear to our heart here at, at Preservation Maryland and, and our program, the Campaign for Historic Trades. Do you want to talk about, I mean, that seems like something that's really big, but anything else that you want to talk about or do you want to talk about that?
1: Um, well I really love the this idea of the historic um, trades Task force um, and um, I mean we all know there's a critical shortage of skilled craft people, um in the construction trades um, even more so in the traditional trades um, needed for rehabilitation and restoration of our historic places um, and um, you know keeping building materials in good repair is the best way to to preserve the historic fabric and the people on the front line doing this work are just as integ- integral to historic preservation as, you know, architects and, and you know, building owners and um, and all that. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's easier to get a master's in historic preservation than it is to, to work and get skilled trained you know, training. Um, and... Um, and there's something kind of wrong with that in my mind and the need to go into all this, you know, student loan debt and all that, um, to get a, you know, advanced degree and not learn how to use, um, you know, a saw. Um, and, um, so the, you know, composition of the ACHP, um, its unique capacity to convene federal and non-federal entities, um, and offers a, a unique opportunity, I think, um, in building a traditional skilled trades uh workforce. And in my capacity as chairman um uh next week at our council meeting, um I, I'm hoping to you know make this announcement to in creating the traditional trades training task force. Um and members including the National Park Service, um, of course the Stork Preservation Training Center in Frederick, Maryland, um, our council member at the Department of Education, um, National Trust for Stork Preservation and a- of course, our dear friends at Preservation Maryland through the Campaign for Historic Trades um, and other interested um, ACHP members. Uh, We're hoping that it can expand to include other representatives from skilled and craft um, restoration trades as well, but um, the goal is, you know, to me is to identify how the federal government um, can work with non-federal partners in the private sector to help meet uh, the need for an expanded pool of skilled preservation um, craftspeople um, and then, you know, develop but also, uh, we could potentially, you know, work in a, a policy statement, um, recommending further action on the need, um, for a trades training and ways to, um, to advance the training and to make this training mean something, um, you know, through a curriculum, um, that's widely acknowledged, you know, like a, a certified, hard carrying stamp of approval, you know, of that they are, you know, traditional. Trade
0: skilled. Um, and so. Uh, and it's so strange that that has taken so long, right? Like, I mean, it's just some of these things, you know, I guess you realize how young a country we are and, and how young the preservation movement is, at least in sort of a, a regulatory sense, right, where it's like you're the first chairman of the advisory council. It's taken you know, this long to get to get there, right? Like, you know, and so and now we're just sort of like, you know, we really should have I mean, people have been dabbling in this, obviously, we're not the first people to think about this. But it has taken this long for it really to get together and like, be like, you know what, we really need to focus on this. And and I think there's sort of this recognition too that, like, if we don't do this now, we may not have an opportunity in 20 years to make sure that there's a workforce there to do this kind of work.
1: Mm-hmm. who knows what will be further deteriorated, you know, beyond <laughs> use again at that point. But also, again, not being the first to think of this, and there are certainly been many efforts over, you know, what I'm just seeing in my research over at least 40 years. Um, and if we can kind of convene, you know, this um, all-star cast of characters um, with various abilities and ways to influence, um, you know, maybe we can make things happen on, on this front. And so I am looking forward to working with you on this, and uh, and to see what we can uh, do in this capacity at the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation.
0: So, um, and, oh and yeah, I was just going to jump in and sort sort of ask, you know, you trades obviously is a priority for you, but is there anything else that you're hoping to accomplish over the next several years of your appointment, and and how long does your appointment last?
1: Yes, um, technically um, it's a four-year appointment that started in 2017, although it was nominated in 2018 and confirmed in 2019, <laughs> it goes until 2021, um, but the beauty of the advisory council, um, uh, council members stay on until they are um, replaced essentially, and so um, I, may be, uh, I may have the ability to have some overlap and to have some continuity of, of the council and um, the work we do, um, which um, I think just... Um, a a good way to to operate versus having a countdown clock. And um, so, um, you know, there's a lot of um, good work being done, um, but the unique capacity working with, you know, the um, current members of the administration that are on our council um, has been, you know, Going very well, um, you know, working our HUD partners, um, you know, with their opportunity zones and affordable housing initiatives. Um, every now and then, you know, historic preservation ends up in, in a discussion of being a barrier to such a thing. But at the same time, you know, all these opportunity zone articles I'm seeing are all they're all rehabbing, you know, historic buildings that have been sitting vacant for decades. Um, and affordable housing. Just the other day, Secretary Carson, you know, noted that um, you know it's what, you know, whatever can keep costs down and you know of course we all know that using what's already built <laughs> is a great way to do that and so um so you know as long as i can you know Work and engage on um, all these other federal agency partners while I can. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing that as much as possible, but um, otherwise, you know, work that can continue on is, um, you know, we've got a, a digital information task force um, that was formed to address the need uh, for more uniformly available digital tools, um, including GIS. Uh, we've come into so many dead ends trying to get different systems to talk to one another. Um, for example, even with the Opportunity Zones, <laughs> um, this great um, interactive web based site from the Economic Development Agency at Commerce, um, we could not get it to to talk with the National Register, um, GIS information. Um, But, you know, I'm hoping that our savvy friends at the state level um, working with their SHPO's and their counterparts and their economic development agencies can do a better job than we can at the federal government. Um, But anyways, this task force will, you know, work to address... um, um, you know, getting this information um, uh, on the location of historic sites um, to better inform project planning. Um, you know, we just know better information having access to it um, um, and having a clear connection to current government-wide efforts is, you know, the way to improve efficiency of environmental reviews, um, which includes Section 106 reviews, um, especially um, many governors have a lot of infrastructure um, uh, projects, you know, in queue and wish lists for all that kind of thing. and if we can you know help you know in a timely way do these reviews um it it's the digital information is what's what's necessary um and again that can't be just you know any effort it can't be dictated from the top down i mean uh, and so every state has their own information in a different type of way every federal agency does too for that matter um and then we have to be sensitive of course to information from the tribes um you yeah, know, not everything should just be flat out on the internet as well. And so, um, so the task force recently completed a report, um, and, and has now developed an action plan. And so I'm looking forward to, uh, doing these different things on the action plan, um, and hoping to, um, I can see that we can, that some of these are definitely achievable. Um, And uh, along those lines, too, we also um, have a leveraging historic buildings working group. That I know the um, state of Maryland had a recent effort. Um, This is an interagency working group to help develop the ACHP um, to overcome obstacles in increased uh, leasing of federal uh, historic buildings to the private sector. Um, We're trying to provide guidance on agency reuse and consolidation of of federal buildings. And um, the the biggest thing is trying to identify these obstacles and what we can do about that. Um, So, agencies could better utilize their Section 111 um, leasing authorities. And uh, so, we are going to be highlighting the state of Maryland's plan uh, next week in one of our meetings. Oh, fantastic. And... um, yeah, yeah, we were very happy to see that. It's just a very good report. Um, and also, uh, on the fun side of preservation is, uh, preservation in practice. Um, this partnership with the Park Service and the National Trust Hope Crew, um, a summer program for, um, architecture students at historically black colleges and universities. Schools that we partner with is Morgan State, right in Baltimore. And, uh, so that's fun because we can easily see them and they can easily come down this way. Um, but the other one is, uh, other ones are Tuskegee and then Hampton in Virginia. And, um, the, this program introduces African American architecture students to historic preservation and related career paths and uh, raises awareness of their rich, um, legacies at these HBCUs. Um, and so it's a largely a summer program, um, where they spend time at Grand Teton mm-hmm. National Park, um, working with the trades crew out there, and then um, coming to to D.C. for a period of time and, and visiting various sites, and, and we gather all sorts of preservation professionals. Professionals to for them um, to um, to hear from, engage with, and um, so yeah, we've got you know the the compliance side of of the ACHP, but then um, you know what I'd love to call the fun external side of of preservation.
0: Well, it, um, it, you're you're definitely busy, which is good to hear, and it's great to hear all this good work that's happening. If people want to learn more about the advisory council, uh, where do they find you online? Mm-hmm.
1: We are at achp.gov, and I believe there's Facebook and Twitter um, as well. Um, and they can follow you, you
0: on Twitter as well. Is that right?
1: Yes, there is a, a Chairman ACHP Twitter feed now, and um, and I have to say, Twitter's been a great source of information <laughs> on, on various uh, uh, federal initiatives and what states are doing and what um, you know state partners are doing. I know. I'm now, like, dating and aging myself. <laughs> yes. We have to
0: get you on TikTok next, I think, Amy.
1: Yeah. I don't know if I'm ready I for that. I don't know that. either. So here's the <laughs> other
0: thing you're probably not ready for. The most difficult question, your favorite historic site or place?
1: Oh, oh gosh. So that's like picking a favorite child. I know. And, I have and three of you,
0: you kind of live in the political world, so be careful with your answer here.
1: <laughs> yeah. I am so- I'm going to go with just this gut feeling of what I remember seeing as a child and being in awe with and what may have led to further curiosities, which, of course, is the Pabst Mansion right on Wisconsin Avenue in the heart of Milwaukee. Okay. (laughs) It is this this amazing mansion, of course, you know, built by these German craftsmen, beautiful woodwork, brickwork, and it is, you know, right um, at one time um there were mansions just like it all up and down the street, and that's the only one standing to this day. And so it's always neat to, you know, where a historic site can one, you know, it's obviously, you know, amazing to see on its own, but then it also, you know, directs you to learn more about what was also, you know, what was around it and why it looks different now, and you know, various local policies that led to that. And uh, so, anyways, it's near a college campus, and I have a feeling that led to some of its the mice nearby. But um, it's uh its just—it's it, just a neat place. And is, I, uh, is
0: this presumably the the family that made Pabst Blue Ribbon?
1: Yes, it is. And it's, yes, Frederick Pabst and uh, Captain Pabst. And, in fact, there's even a little addition off to the side that is this uh, really neat little structure that was used in the 1893 World's Fair as the Pabst exhibit space. And it was there where they received their blue ribbon.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is a a fantastic place to end this conversation. Didn't think we would end up with Pabst Blue Ribbon. (laughs) (laughs) But I would expect nothing else um, from uh, the Midwestern Chairman of the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. So, um, it's been a pleasure talking with you, looking forward to seeing um, all the good work that you're going to do over the next few years um, in your role as Chairman of the Advisory Council. Thank you so much for joining us today in PreserveCast.
1: Uh, Well, thank you, Nick, and thank you
0: for all you do. All right, and we're out.
2: Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support and remember to keep preserving.